Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Mason's Program for Bible Lessons by Art Middlecoff. Before we talk about Bible lessons in particular, we need to situate Bible lessons within all of education. Are Bible lessons something that sits in a separate religious sphere, as some have claimed? Can education be divided into two parts, where you have the sort of secular, spiritually neutral education that's shared by all that's over in one domain, and then you have the spiritual side of education, that's the domain of the church, which operates according to different rules and mandated and governed by a different set of powers and forces. I've been accused in the past of conflating Charlotte Mason's philosophy of education with her religion and not maintaining a proper separation between the two. And I would have to say that I plead guilty. You don't need to take me to trial. You don't need to amass the evidence. I say right up front, I confess that I conflate them. In fact, I see no distinction between her philosophy of education and her religion. Charlotte Mason said that the culmination of all education, not just the secular or the sacred, there's no real distinction at all. She said the culmination of all education is that personal knowledge of and intimacy with the supreme in which our being finds its fullest perfection. Where do we find, where does a human being grow into the fullest of perfection? There's only one way and it's in the knowledge of the Supreme. Jesus said that eternal life is to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Everything, says Charlotte Mason, that need be taught to a youth is no doubt explicit or implicit in the Christian religion. So when we situate, first of all, we have to understand that when we situate Bible lessons within the overall purpose, aim, and program of education, it sits squarely within a single, composite model. It is not off to the side in a separate sacred area. So if we understand that scripture study is one branch of an overall program that's designed to lead us into the knowledge of God with the effect that we become the fullest of who God intended us to be, what specific role does scripture study place in that overall journey towards the knowledge of God? To answer that question, I'm going to quote from R.A. Pennethorne, and she was a graduate of the House of Education, writing in 1921 on Bible lessons. And she said, to begin with, Scripture with us is not an isolated subject. It's not the only public recognition of God in the school curriculum. We believe that in that painting in Florence, which Miss Mason ventures to describe as the great recognition, is shown the true educational gospel that all knowledge is part of holy wisdom and the gift of God's spirit. So we try to inculcate a spirit of reverence and wonder in all studies while putting first things first and beginning every morning with a scripture lesson in the place of honor. So where do Bible lessons sit within that overall program? It's one purpose. It's one coherent core of knowledge. But scripture studies are in the position of first honor. It's the first fruits. It's the special anointed way that 
sheds its light on and sanctifies every other element of what we do in lessons. And we symbolize that by putting it first in the day. But it's first in so many ways. So where does scripture study fit in the program then? Here's a, a model. This is now my illustration. I'm not citing a parent's review article for this. This is how I like to visualize it. Um, so if we say that the knowledge of God sits at the head of the program of education that Charlotte Mason developed, then we can say within that we have scripture study as one type of lesson that points to and contributes to the knowledge of God. And then we have other subjects under the same heading that point to and lead towards the knowledge of God. Within scripture study, there's two main types of scripture study that are included in the programs explicitly. The first one is Bible lessons, and the second one is private daily Bible reading. And I would classify both of those under the broad heading of scripture study in Mason's program for Bible lessons. I'll come back to this diagram in later slides, but this kind of gives you how I see it and kind of my mental model of how the subjects break out. So I'd like to talk about uh, Bible lessons and private daily Bible reading and uh, their similarities and their differences. So from a purpose perspective, both private daily Bible reading and Bible lessons have the same ultimate purpose, and that's to lead children, uh, persons, into the knowledge of God. They're both required. These are both specified explicitly in the programs, stated. Um, if you're doing the method, these are things that your children are doing. Neither one is left to doubt or left to the um, whim of, of the parent or educator. The programs from the PNEU specified what exactly should be done for both of these. We start to see a little bit of a difference when it comes to their <coughs> participants. So the private daily Bible reading, as you can see from the name, it's by, the participant is the student alone. It's private. It's personal. It's individual. Whereas Bible lessons is different from Bible, private daily Bible reading because it is the student and the teacher together. So that's the first difference that we see between these two types of scripture study in the programs. The other main difference we see is around the sequence. So the private daily Bible reading, its sequence was based on the Christian year. This is the liturgical church calendar, the ecumenical non-denominational church calendar that's been in use in one form or another by most uh, parts of the body of Christ over the past two millennia. Um, whereas in Bible lessons, instead of following the Christian year, it follows a comprehensive Bible curriculum. So most, many, many things in common, a few important differences. So back to our diagram, which will be kind of our roadmap during this presentation. Um, we're going to begin with Bible lessons. And uh, after we spend some time, we're going to spend a fair amount of time on Bible lessons. Then we'll spend some time talking about the second red box, the private daily Bible reading. And then we'll talk about a few other topics uh, at the end. So let's start on Bible lessons. And uh, again, always starting with the why, the purpose, the reason. I'm now going to be quoting Eleanor Frost. And uh, she was also a House of Education student and graduate, uh, also writing in the Parents Review. This was from 1913. This particular article is a beautiful, beautiful article on Bible lessons. This one is available on charlottemasonpoetry.org. Um, it's, it's absolutely worth reading. So now we're zeroing in specifically on Bible lessons, that branch of scripture study. And here's what Eleanor Frost wrote about that. The knowledge of God. These simple yet profound words might stand, perhaps with arresting effect, at the head of any Bible lesson. 
These words give at once the essential reason for such a lesson, and who, seeing them, would let the manifold literary but lesser claims of the Bible outweigh its first and greatest as a revelation of the divine. She's almost saying, put those three words. I don't know if she means this literally or metaphorically, but she's saying, put these three words at the head of your Bible lesson. Because if you have these three words at the head of the Bible lesson, then you would never run the risk of letting the wonderful literary and historical claims of the Bible outweigh the higher purpose, which is God's self-revelation and his divinely appointed means by which we may know him. To bring through knowledge the hearts of the children in love and loyalty towards their maker is thus the first duty in scripture teaching. And it is through the establishment of this personal relationship that they are led to what a saint of old so beautifully described as the practice of the presence of God. So I want to just linger on some of these words. What is it meant by the knowledge of God? Is the purpose of these lessons to bring children into conformity to Christian ethical behavior? Is the purpose of Bible lessons to bring children into a defensible theological system, a model of systematic theology that can withstand onslaughts from rational attack? Is it to make out of children people who will go out and be evangelists as the primary purpose? No, it says that it's about the hearts of the children to have love and loyalty towards their maker. Those are relationship words. Love is a relationship. Loyalty is a relationship. And she says it outright. It's actually through the establishment of this personal relationship, it's relationship that is at the heart of what allows them to then enter into and experience the practice of the presence of God. That's the aim for Bible lessons. And remember what we saw earlier on the chart. This is student and teacher together. These are classroom lessons. Do you understand this? This is when parent and, or teacher and student are together, parent and child are together, following a curriculum. And yet this is the lofty aim of that element of the class. This is school time. And school time is to lead children into love and loyalty for their maker. So I've tried to uh, understand what was the design principle behind this comprehensive curriculum of Bible lessons. And uh, I believe that um, Mason reveals her design principle in Formation of Character, pages 408 and 409. And she's describing where she sees Bible lessons as having failed in uh, contemporary England in her time. And she says that, um, and I'll kind of lead into her point, she says, to repeat what I've already insisted upon, to weariness, we must teach children a definite, ordered philosophy of life. Is it all in the Bible? Yes, but our teaching of the Bible is no longer of the full, exhaustive, progressive kind that should issue in a balanced character. I want to kind of unpack this. Remember, she's responding. What's happening here is that she's pointing out a deficiency in Bible lessons in her day. And there's the critic, the skeptic, is saying, yes, we need to have this kind of philosophy of life. It needs to be taught. And the skeptic is almost saying, really? Really? It's all in the Bible? 
And she says, yes, it's in the Bible, but the reason that you doubt is because the Bible hasn't been taught properly. That's what she's saying. She's saying that the Bible only seems to fall short when you're looking for that philosophy of life, when you're looking for that complete framework that your children need. The reason why Bible lessons may seem to fall short is only because you haven't approached it in a full, exhaustive, and progressive manner. And so to turn this around, what I believe Charlotte Mason has laid out in her programs is a Bible curriculum that is full, exhaustive, and progressive. And so those are the three words that you'll see as descriptors that I'm going to keep coming back to as I walk through her comprehensive Bible sequence. Full, exhaustive, progressive. And that will be your way of knowing that, uh, that your program for Bible lessons follows Miss Mason's vision because she believed that only if it was full, exhaustive, and progressive could it really give children everything that they need in terms of an overall philosophy of life. Now, before I jump into this, um, I'm going to be driving a lot of evidence from the historical programs themselves. Now, we, I wish that we had every program that was ever produced by the PNEU from uh, 1891 up until you know the 50, 60s or whatever, whenever it stopped. We don't. We don't have all of those programs. We actually, in the digital collection and in the collection at the Armit Museum, we only have a limited set of programs. We have in the digital collection programs 90 through 127, which is the years 1921 to 1933. We have um, a program from 1918. We have a couple of programs from 1905 and 1906. And we have the very first program from 1891. That's the, that's the data set that we have to deal with. Now, somebody might say, well, um, I'm not going to accept any data art that you're sharing that comes after 1923, because Charlotte Mason died in 1923, so all of your programs from 1924 on to 1933, those are inadmissible evidence. And the assumption there is that somehow there was this, the thought here is that there's some kind of massive entropy where the moment Charlotte Mason left, like just chaos ruled over the PNEU, and these forces just immediately like changed direction, like they were just waiting for her to be uh, out of the picture. Now, Dr. Jack Beckman wrote his uh, dissertation on this very topic, and uh, this was his PhD dissertation, and it was called um, "Lessons to Learn: Charlotte Mason's House of Education and Resistance to Taxonomic Drift." So his whole dissertation was on how and to what extent the House of Education resisted that kind of tug away from Charlotte Mason's ideals. And uh, it's a very long scholarly paper, incredibly well-researched, um, some, in some incredible research that you can't find anywhere else except in Dr. Beckman's paper. And this is what he wrote. He said that the trilogy of theology, philosophy, and practice and by the way, isn't that a wonderful phrase? I just love that. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? I mean, isn't that, doesn't that capture the, the richness and the breadth of Charlotte Mason's method? It's a trilogy of theology, philosophy, and practice. You can't separate them. You can't have the practice without the philosophy. The philosophy leads to practice. You can't have the philosophy without the theology because the philosophy is grounded in the theology. The practices flow from the theology. They're so intertwined. Uh, I love that. But that trilogy orchestrated Charlotte's trained pedagogy, solidifying an epigenetic core of ideals and beliefs which were to withstand the general onslaught of taxonomic drift from 1886 until 1949. 
He's saying that there was such a strong core of Charlotte Mason's ideals that it was able to withstand the tug from other ideals and forces. So given that when I'm, the sources that I'm going to be citing end with 1933, that's well within the range of 1949. So the gist of it is that I believe that this data that I'm presenting to you is trustworthy. So even though it dates after 1923, it falls within the area where there was stability within the practice. Okay, So uh, what I did in order to better understand uh, Charlotte Mason's program for Bible lessons, I created a spreadsheet that included every Bible lesson in the digital collection. So I noted every detail about every Bible lesson from 1921 to 1933, and I also included 1918, 1905, 1906, and 1891. I put it all in a spreadsheet, and I analyzed it for patterns. I looked for um, what I thought were anomalies, and uh, from that I distilled back what I believe is kind of the core that informed that whole sequence and structure. And uh, what I found was breathtaking. Um, I believe, I truly believe that Charlotte Mason was, a, was brilliant. And uh, I find that in her, from what I was able to pull back from, from this spreadsheet of data, I found what I could truly describe as a full, exhaustive, and progressive curriculum using her words. And so you'll see that there was a, to, uh, an Old Testament track and a New Testament track that took students from Forms 1 through Form 6. Um, I have very kind of loose, rough equivalents to the American grade system. Um, forms 1 and 2 corresponding roughly to grades 1 through 6. Forms 3 to 4 corresponding roughly to grades 7 through 9. And Forms 5 and 6 being the upper years of uh, roughly grades 10 through 12. And so in the Old Testament sequence, we have the students reading through selections from the Old Testament prior to the exile, so the pre-exilic history of Israel, using selections from sacred scripture um, as identified by J. Patterson Smith. And, forms, and then uh, continuing in the Old Testament progressively, moving on to a second pass through Old Testament history, this time using selections from scripture from the Old Testament identified by H. Costley White. And then moving into Forms 5 and 6, now covering the wisdom books of the Old Testament, the prophets, and the post-exilic history of Israel, the people of God. Then we have, in parallel to this, the New Testament sequence, which begins with the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, specifically arranged and selected by J. Patterson Smith, as well as the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. And then the New Testament now splits into two separate tracks. For Forms 3 and 4, we have now the fourth gospel, the non-synoptic gospel of John, and then the full book of Acts, and then proceeding finally in Forms 5 and 6 to the epistles, and finally the book of Revelation. And then going in parallel to this, we have a comprehensive study of the composite gospel history, the, the chronological life of Christ as seen through Scripture, and illuminated by the poetry of uh, Charlotte Mason in her six volumes of The Savior of the World. So this, in a nutshell, hopefully you can see the progressive character, the exhaustive character, the full character. So what I want to do now is probe into each of these in more detail. And uh, I'll start with forms one and two. Here's an example of what this looks like in uh, one of the programs. Um, for Forms 1 and 2, and I've highlighted with my red underline this note that stands at the top of every prescribed Bible lesson in Forms 1 and 2. It says, in all cases, the Bible text must be read and narrated first. Okay? 
So what we see here is even though you'll, if you kind of read on to point A, it says Genesis, lessons 17 through 24. For B, it says St. Luke's Gospel, chapters 16 through 24, um, the Bible for the young, Dr. Patterson Smith. The idea here is that even though the lessons are assigned from Patterson Smith, Patterson Smith is identifying the passages of Scripture to use. You begin with the Bible. Okay? So Patterson Smith is your guide of which passages to read, but it's always the unmediated, unmixed, uninterpreted, undiluted Bible text, which is what the student is encountering at the beginning of the lesson. And uh, the programs leave no doubt as to that um, character of the lesson. So what this starts to look like in a bit more detail for Forms 1 and 2 um, as I've deduced from the programs, uh, The Bible for the Young was a series of books by Patterson Smith. These are listed in the left column. So the uh, Old Testament sequence is, in the, is kind of the brownish-orange, and the aqua green is the New Testament. So these four books of the Bible for the Young, uh, Genesis, which takes the student through the book of Genesis, uh, selections from the book of Genesis across three terms, three terms per year. So the student would be spending a year in Genesis. And then we have Moses and the Exodus, which takes selections from the books of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for three terms. And then we have uh, Patterson Smith's Joshua and Judges, with selections from Joshua, Judges, and 1 Samuel for three terms. And then finally, uh, Prophets and Kings, which is a focus on the narrative historical passages from the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and even Jonah. And uh, that would be anywhere from two to four terms which the students would spend there. And then uh, very straightforward in terms of the New Testament, um, the Synoptic Gospels, um, three terms each, basically one year in Matthew, one year in Luke, and one year in Mark. Mark is shorter, 16 chapters, doesn't fill a whole year. So eight chapters of the first eight chapters of Acts were included in the year that was spent in the Gospel of Mark. So that is the program for Forms 1 and 2. Okay. Then we move on to Forms 3 and 4, and here's again an, an, an example of what we see in the historical programs. And again, we see, I would have, which I've underlined in red, in all cases, all cases, the Bible text must be read and narrated first. Now, instead of pointing to Patterson Smith for which passages to read, now for Forms 3 and 4, it's the Old Testament history by H. Costley White, which is used to determine which passages to read and narrate first. But again, the lesson always begins with the unmediated, undiluted, direct encounter of the student with Scripture that they're narrating first before they're consulting any other source or having any other form of discussion. Costly White had a uh, Costly White produced a five-volume Old Testament history, and uh, students could cover that into all five volumes across eleven terms. So, uh, basically, just under four years it would take you to go through the his uh, Old Testament sequence, and um, we see here that now it's a it's a it's another run through um, the Old Testament history. So uh, they had covered already. Um, narrative passages of scripture leading up to um, the mid-kings before the exile, and uh, Costly White is taking them back again through another pass through the Old Testament history in Forms 3 and 4. On the New Testament, I mentioned that the New Testament follows two tracks. New Testament studies have two things going on simultaneously. Uh, Forms 3 and 4 would go through the Gospel of John, as well as the complete book of Acts. 
And those two books could be covered across nine terms or three years, one year spent in the Gospel of John, and two years through the book of Acts. Then we move on to Forms 5 and 6. And uh, the interesting thing is that in the programs for Forms 5 and 6, we no longer see that note at the top. We don't see the note at the top that says, in all cases, the Bible text must be read and narrated first. Now, how do we interpret that? Um, does it mean that when you get to Forms 5 and 6, you don't have to read the Bible first anymore and you can just jump right into you know, the commentaries or other things? Or is it just assumed that by this point it's pretty clear that that's the method to be followed? The, I think some evidence for, towards the latter is note how the passages are assigned now. Instead of pointing to Patterson-Smith, Lessons 1 through 8, or instead of pointing to Costly White, Volume 3, pages you know, 10 through 30, instead you have the actual book of the Bible and the chapters of the Bible. So I think because now you're explicitly going straight to, it's now the program itself that's saying which book of the Bible to read and which chapters, I think that that provides very strong evidence that, again, the intention was that the Bible text should be read and narrated first. And so my personal belief is that that's the pattern that was meant to be followed all the way through Form 6, and for that matter, into life. And that's certainly my personal practice. I always read the Bible first <coughs> in my own private Bible study and devotions. I've highlighted in blue here one of the rare times when the programs actually specify a Bible translation. Translations are almost never mentioned in the programs, um, but when they are, the only translation that's ever mentioned by name is the revised version, the English revised version translation of the Bible. And I'm going to spend some time talking about that later, but I have that underlined in blue now so just you can see an example of where it shows up, but I'll kind of develop that topic a little bit later. So for Forms 5 and 6 now, um, it's not specifying Costly White or Patterson-Smith. It's giving actual books of the Bible, chapters to read. And as I've looked at the pattern and examined uh, which books were covered, um, this is the kind of the best distillation I could, I could make as far as the rotation for Forms 5 and 6. And you can see that there's a heavy focus on, uh, first of all, the wisdom books, Job, Psalms, the prophetic books, and uh, the post-exilic history, um, specifically Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's a very fine way to, for the older student prior to graduating to, to encounter the, the full richness of some of the most um, uh, robust and uh, dense um, passages of, of Holy Scripture. Now, in terms of uh, the New Testament, the first track, uh, focus on the epistles, there is a mention of Revelation. I was not, I've never been able to find a program that explicitly uh, um, assigns the book of Revelation. I have found one program in terms of that we just have the exam questions, but not the actual assigned reading. And the exam questions do ask questions about Revelation. So it's clear that at some point, uh, Revelation was covered, um, but I don't see it in the later programs, um, and so, but I do see these books showing up, and these se this seems to be a pretty reliable rotation. So then that's the track one of the New Testament sequence for Forms 5 and 6. I mentioned that there's a second track through the New Testament, and the second track through the New Testament focuses on the chronological story of the life of Christ as portrayed through the four Gospels. And... Um, the sequence through this chronological life of Christ is based on the poetic volumes of the Savior of the world. These are six volumes of poetry, which can be covered in six years. 18 terms, one volume per year 
one volume split out over three terms. And uh, so you can see the exact page numbers. And this pattern is rock solid in the programs. There's no deviation from this whatsoever. So this is precisely how it was followed. So we've got basically now these different tracks, and I've showed you years and number of terms, and how, how, what do you do with all that information? What does that actually start to look like in a particular year? Like if you're going to sit down for this year, you know, which books of the Bible are you going to be reading? In order to make sense of all this uh, data, it's important to understand um, a concept that we like to use the word rotations to describe it. I'm not sure that that word rotation is actually used in the PNEU historical literature, but it's a, I think it's a fine term to use to describe the phenomena of the phenomenon that we see. And I like to illustrate that with a familiar combination lock where you have each thing can be numbered, each little um, you know, knob or whatever, you can, you can rotate them independently. So um, each one has a sequence, but there's no correlation between the parallel, um, the parallel lines within that sequence. So this is, I think, a good picture of what it would look like to go through these Bible lessons with all the different tracks. So you can think of the Old Testament as being one of these dials. You can think of New Testament track one as being one of these dials, New Testament track two as being one of these dials. And the most important thing to understand is there is no coordination between the tracks. Um, I believe that based on what I've seen in the, in the programs. There's no thought that says when you're reading um, you know, when you're reading Joshua and Judges, you should be reading Luke because, you know, Luke has a special affinity for, you know, it's not like that at all. Um, it, it, any given point in time, the dials could be lined up any given way. Student, the other important thing, besides there being no coordination in tracks, the other really important thing to understand is that students may join and leave at any point in the rotation. So Charlotte Mason clearly did not believe that there was something um, essential or sacred that that you should start with the Gospel of Matthew or that you should start with Genesis. So the progressive nature of it was certainly within the forms, but once you were with it are the, the pairs of forms, the one and two, three and four, five and six. But where you happen to enter into the rotation was not apparently a significant concern for Charlotte Mason. So if a student happened to come in on, uh, you know, based on like this rotation, if a student happened to come in on, on the book of James, that's okay. Um, they go to James, Hebrews, first uh, through third John and Jude, and then back around to Romans one through eight. It doesn't really matter. And same thing for the Savior of the world. The idea might be that um, a student graduates into form three, and the PNEU across all of England perhaps was now on term sixteen in the rotation. So a form three student could be stepping in for the very first time to begin studying the Savior of the world, and they would jump right in in, in volume six and they would turn around and get back to volume one again. So there was one grand rotation of the savior of the world shared by forms three through six. So what that meant is anywhere in the kingdom, uh, whether, you in, whether you were a 13 year old or an 18 year old, if you were subscribing to the PNEU programs um, across this wide age range of six years, they would all be reading the same volume of the savior of the world at the same time. So there was a kind of communal aspect which took precedence over, the, um, over having a particular starting point. What if some Bible books are missed? You know, what, if, what if you're not able to squeeze in everything? Eleanor Frost, I mentioned earlier that her wonderful article on Bible lessons from uh, Parents Review, Volume 24, she said, lastly in class four, a quick note, um, when, when there's two different ways that the levels are referred to in the historical documentation. There's the six forms, but sometimes they talk about four classes. 
And uh, there's evidence that we can find from various places that help us to map the relationship between classes and forms. And so when you see class four, that corresponds to forms five and six. So when Eleanor Frost says lastly in class four, she's referring to the top end, people who are about to graduate. So she says in class four, the teacher's work is not so much to teach as to direct. The pupils must search and strive for themselves. Her office is to stimulate their thought, quicken their conscience, and show them the way of personal study, that when the actual supervision of school days is over, they may know how to continue Bible study for themselves. So you're trying to build a self-sufficient student of sacred scripture who will be equipped to go and study whatever they may have missed in your otherwise exhaustive and full curriculum. That's your aim. Your aim is to not be needed anymore. So now I want to talk a bit about commentaries and how commentaries are used throughout. Um, so this is my interpretation of what I've seen in the programs and how I understand it. So starting with um, Forms 1 through 2, I believe that the commentaries were intended for the teacher. So J. Patterson Smith, in addition to selecting passages to read from the Old Testament, he also would include some devotional commentary, some theological commentary on these passages. And I think that the instructions from the programs and other writings make it pretty clear that that's meant to be a tool to the parent so that the parent-teacher can get some background about the passage of scripture that's about to be studied. I'll jump to the right-hand side for Forms 5 and 6. Um, it's, it's quite clear that in Forms 5 and 6, the student was meant to read the commentary. So there's a shift now. So for um, kind of 10th through 12th grade, roughly speaking, the student has developed now the, the skill to be able to directly read a commentary. But remember, that's after reading and narrating the Bible passage. And then in the middle, for Forms 3 and 4, I suspect that that's meant to be somewhat of a blend of teacher and student. Um, the commentary used for the Old Testament, as we've said before, was H. Costly White, which not only gave the Bible passages to read, but also included some commentary on those passages. And then for the Gospel of John, um, Charlotte Mason and the program selected the commentary on the four Gospels by William Washam Howe. And uh, the commentary that was selected for the Acts of the Apostles um, was called The Acts of the Apostles by Ellen Mary Knox. And then the commentary chosen for Forms 5 and 6, both Old Testament and New Testament, is the one-volume commentary by John Roberts Dumelo. So those were the, co those were the commentaries that, that appear um, as the normal pattern within the programs and how I believe they were used. Now, shifting out of my research mode and into my homeschooling dad you know, mode, and uh, this is where I have the big caveat that says your mileage may vary, and this is just kind of my personal experience. I haven't experienced everything. I've experienced a, you know, my piece of the world. So from my point of view, I have spent some time with J. Patterson Smith. Um, I think J. Patterson Smith has some very insightful ideas and uh, really brings out a lot of the truth of Scripture. In my experience, it's been a great way to kind of enhance Scripture and be able to uh, increase and, and enhance a dialogue with, with a child um, when studying these passages in Forms 1 and 2. Um, I personally have no experience with Costly White or with Washam Howe or with uh, Ellen Mary uh, Knox's Acts of the Apostles, so I can't give you, I can give you very, very little feedback on those. Um, anything I've heard about Costly White for the most part has been secondhand. Um, I could 
you know, speak off my head about it, but it probably would not be as useful. I prefer to speak, out, speak about something that I have more personal experience with. Um, for Forms 5 and 6, I have spent time with Dumelo. I was skeptical at first, to be honest. I'm, I'm very picky personally about commentaries, but I was uh, very pleasantly surprised with Dumelo, and I found it to be um, very helpful for me, um, just in my own spiritual walk, and I found it to, to be very rich in terms of um, enhancing my scripture study with my Form 5 student, my 15-year-old daughter, and so um, it's been very fruitful, and so I, I, I say check, I like it. Um, no commentary is perfect, um, and, uh, and again, your mileage may vary, but that's just my personal experience. So then I want to talk about um, the timetables. So we've focused so, mar so far on the content and the sequence of Bible lessons. Now let's talk about the timetables. Um, so you can see a lot more information about timetables on charlottemasonpoetry.org. We have an, uh, a resource there called Parents Union School Timetables where we've looked at it, created a composite view, harmonizing timetables across about a 40-year span of PNEU documents. And then Rochelle has created an amazing chart which actually puts all the forms together into a single table. It's very, very cool. So you can see all that. But pulling out just the portions that deal with uh, Bible lessons, we can see that Bible lessons were conducted as part of school. Remember, these are Bible lessons as part of the school time. This is lesson time and uh, took place four days of the six-day school week that was uh, normal for the programs. And uh, there was an alternation between Old Testament and New Testament. And we see that Bible lessons were uh, 20 minutes across the board for Forms 1 and 2, 20 minutes across the board for Forms 3 and 4, and then uh, increased to 30 minutes for Forms 5 and 6. Now, I mentioned that the New Testament, for Forms 3 through 6, there were two different tracks. One track was going through books of the New Testament. Another track was going through the Savior of the world. My personal belief is that Fridays were the day that were used for track 2, the Savior of the world. I can't prove that. I don't have any direct evidence for that. Um, but given that there were two days of New Testament studies and there were two separate tracks, it would seem logical to me that they would be split on two different days. And then given that uh, a lot of, um, there's a lot of influence of, of the liturgy and the church calendar inform some elements of Bible lessons. And from a liturgical perspective, Sunday is, of course, the day we celebrate the resurrection. Every Sunday is like a little Easter. Friday, remember Good Friday, is the day that we remember the cross. And every Friday, in a sense, is like a little Good Friday. And uh, so tr in, in the traditional liturgies, Friday is a day that we specifically remember the sufferings of Christ. And I think that that is, uh, given the themes of the Savior of the world and the way that she takes a complete view of the life of Christ and how so much of his sayings and doings pointed to his sacrifice on the cross, I think that Fridays are a great day for that particular study. And um, it's also a very, it's, it tends to be a very spiritually rich time. And uh, Fridays is kind of a nice way to kind of close out the week with that reflective experience with the New Testament. So I mentioned that I would talk to you a bit about Bible translations. As I said before, the programs very rarely specify an English translation. But when they do, they call it the Revised Version. We know it today as the English Revised Version. We refer to it today as the ERV. It's not a very common translation nowadays. Few people know what the ERV is. Um, but Charlotte Mason evidently used the ERV herself 
as it was her text in the 1898 Meditations. So to give you a little bit of a history of this, when Charlotte Mason was teaching at the House of Education, which we know is the building of Scale Howe, on Sundays, and Sunday was part of the program for teaching her teachers in training, on Sundays she had her what she called meditations, and that was a time when she gathered with her students, and she would, they would read a Bible passage, and she would give her kind of reflection, um, kind of a devotional, on the passage that was being read. She wrote down those meditations. And in the year of 1898, each Sunday meditation was written up and then they were sent out to subscribers. That continued just for the year 1898 and then it was stopped. These meditations were written in prose. They're the closest thing we have to a commentary on sacred scripture by Charlotte Mason, the way we normally think of as commentaries. Those 1898 meditations, which have been published now as the Scale How Meditations, because they were given at Scale How, those meditations were later included in the Parents Review. So starting in, the, um, starting in I think, around 1910, she started to drop some of these meditations from 1898 into Parents Review uh, magazines in the years that went on. So it's evident that, that uh, these were important to Charlotte Mason because she had them reprinted and sent out through the Parents Review. The meditations are also important because they are the precursor to the Savior of the World. The Savior of the World is her poetry reflections on Scripture. The meditations were her prose reflections on Scripture. And you can actually see correlations between the two. So when you read her poetry on, let's say, John chapter 6, you can see how she poetically developed some topics that she wrote about in prose in the 1898 meditations. In those 1898 meditations, when she quotes scripture, she is quoting the ERV. Furthermore, the savior of the world is based on the ERV. And she, that's, that's a fact of history. She began that work in 1908. But we know that as early as 1898, she was using the ERV. And Charlotte Mason and the Parents Review writers occasionally point out differences between the ERV and the AV, the authorized version, popularly known as the King James Version. So they were aware of both translations, and they were aware of the differences between the two. I'd like to give you one example of where Charlotte Mason, in the meditations, brought out the difference between the ERV and the authorized or King James Version. This is her comments on John chapter 211. The scale how meditations were, took her from John chapter 1 up until John chapter 8. So that's the only passage of scripture that we have her actual prose devotional commentary. But I'd like to read to you what she had to say on John 2.11. And if you want to kind of look at this in context, you can get the scale how meditations, which are available on lulu.com, edited and published by Dr. Benjamin Bernier, who I believe is the foremost scholar on Charlotte Mason alive today. And uh, his edition of Scale Home Meditations is annotated with uh, a lot of theological background. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource if you want to know Charlotte Mason's real heart for the Lord and how the revelation of God through the Gospels, how that informed her philosophy of education. This book is the Rosetta Stone for that. You know, when you read the six volumes of, of, uh, about her philosophy of education, she doesn't always tell you explicitly where her ideas tie back to Christ and his revelation. You're seeing it from the viewpoint of the leaves. When you start to read Scale Home Meditations, now you're starting from the roots 
and you start to see where her conception of Christ led to her beliefs about how education should be conducted. When you've read both, then the tree starts to emerge. So I highly recommend that book. Um, so what did she have to say on John chapter 2, verse 11? She says, the revised version gives us signs instead of miracles. So what she's saying is that John 2.11, the King James Version uses the word miracles, but the English Revised Version uses the word signs. She says the change is significant. A miracle is a portent, a marvel. The beholders wonder at it, and their thoughts go no further. A sign, on the other hand, arrests the attention, directs thought beyond itself to the thing signified. And the thing signified in this case was the glory of Christ, which he manifested forth that day. And so she felt that the choice of the word signs was significant, that Christ's healings and his miracles and so on were to point us towards something bigger than the fact that he violated natural laws, but they were meant to point us to his glory and his uniqueness. And so Charlotte Mason was aware of the differences, and she preferred this translation because she liked the words that were used. Charlotte Mason didn't do things by accident. She had a purpose behind them. So the English Revised Version, here's a picture of what it looks like. It was completed in 1885. That's when the translation was done. It is the first and only officially authorized revision of the authorized version in Britain. In Britain, they don't have the same separation of church and state that we do here. The Church of England is the national church. Parliament authorized, you know, the church government authorized which Bible translations could be used. Um, the only time that the Church of England officially authorized a different translation besides the King James to be used, it was the ERV. Uh, Charlotte Mason was using it in 1898. For her to use it in her meditations in 1898 is like somebody today, from a chronological perspective, it's like somebody today, or in 2014, using the English Standard Version, the ESV. The ESV was completed in 2001. So 2014 would have been 13 years later. The ERV was completed in 1885. Charlotte Mason was using it at least as early as 1898. So what we can see here is that she was aware of what was going on in her day, and she chose the translation that she felt was best that was available in that particular time period. So now I'm going to shift gears, and I'm going to talk about how a lesson is conducted. So there's a standard form or process that was followed for these Bible lessons that were either 20 minutes in the case of Forms 1 through 4 or 30 minutes in the cases of Forms 5 and 6. Step 1, the lesson is connected with the previous one. Why is this important? So think, for example, your New Testament track. You're going from Wednesday to Wednesday. So now we're starting in Wednesday and we're picking up the Gospel of John. We haven't looked at it in seven days. So this is a very short bridge that the teacher says to help the student Get, get, kind of bring to recollection the context. So the teacher would say something along the lines of, last week when we were reading the Gospel of John, you know, Jesus was at the pools of Beth Bethsaida. He healed the paralyzed man. He got in trouble because it was the Sabbath. Now we're going to see what happened next. So it's basically the teacher helping to bridge the connection that would otherwise have been spread apart by, let's say, a week. Then the Bible passage is read. Then the Bible passage is narrated. And then discussion follows. These are the four steps of a Bible lesson. This is the skeleton that we see from beginning to end in these Bible lessons. Steps one, two, and three are pretty easy to understand, although I will say something about uh, the narration part. Um, it's interesting because Charlotte Mason, when she talks about narration, she says that it's not meant to be a mere verbal repetition of what you read. And uh, she talks about how every narration is like a new creation. It's 
your idea becomes my idea, like I showed this morning. And through narration, the child is often creating some kind of new concept that is a, that's a combination of what they read plus how they're understanding it, how they're making meaning out of it. And um, so there was never any kind of encouragement in narration to use the author's words because you're not, this is not mimetic instruction, this isn't repetition, this isn't memorization, this is about expressing the internalization of an idea. The interesting thing is, though, when Charlotte Mason talks about narrating the Bible, she says, use as closely as possible the author's own words. Huh. So that specific admonition to use the author's words is unique to Charlotte Mason's comments on narrating scripture. Now, was that accidental or was that intentional? Now, somebody could say, well, Art, you know, you're totally just focusing on you know, these microscopic details. You know, you're trying to draw too much from this. The distinction doesn't mean anything. You're pulling this out of thin air. Well, it turns out that actually there was a discussion on this very topic in the Parents' Review approximately 10 years after Charlotte Mason's death where these House of Education students were noting this difference and were discussing the fact that when Charlotte Mason said to narrate from sacred scripture, she said, use the author's own words. And the, parent, the, the House of Education student writers in the Parents' Review themselves said, there was, this was intentional. This was intentional, and the reason why is because Scripture is different. Yes, there are many living books, but there's only one book that, that God himself says is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it speaks to us in a language that's universal. And so when we're created in God's image, in our minds, we are, we are created to know and understand his truth, and so when we hear his words and when we say them back, our ideas are his ideas. When we can say his words, and when we can say, like, when our words become his words, then scripture is truly sanctifying our minds and our thoughts. And only scripture has the privilege of taking that special place, of really becoming our thoughts. That's the only place where pure kind of imitation is really permissible, is when we're dealing with the revelation of God. So narration in Bible passages, if your children are narrating back and they are saying exactly what they heard in scripture, rejoice, because that's a wonderful thing. They're making the scriptures their own. And I've certainly seen that in my daughter's experience. She sound, when she narrates the Bible, she sounds like a Bible. Um, but that's not the same way when she's narrating history. Okay, so, so anyway, that's uh, step three. But then we have discussion follows. So I've puzzled over this thing about discussion. What does discussion look like? And it's been a, it's been a tough thing for me to try to, to figure out. Um, because, you know, what, what's the role of questioning in the Charlotte Mason method? We know that we're not supposed to overwhelm the child with too many words. We know that all education is self-education. So there's a tension that's been very difficult for me to, to try to distill down and grasp. Um, I'm very thankful to uh, Liz Catrill, who has written a beautiful article um, called On Questions and Questioning. She wrote that just a month ago for Charlotte Mason Poetry. Uh, she also recorded it for the Charlotte Mason Poetry podcast. Uh, Emily Kaiser read the quotations. It's a very nice performance. Um, and her research is fantastic. A very balanced, a very insightful view on the role of questions in a Charlotte Mason education. So I'm not going to repeat what was in that, but that's a great help, not only for Bible lessons, but just in general, what's the role of questions in the method. Um, I think that uh, it's a great resource for the community. So that's, that's helpful, but I'm going to zero in very specifically on discussion with regards to Bible lessons and the evidence that I've seen from the parents' review. So I'm first going to go back to my friend Eleanor Frost and her 1913 article. Um, that's the first quote. She said, discussion follows 
an explanation, the pupils being led to do as much as possible of this themselves. So that's the first thing we observe in the discussion. It is, to the extent possible, student-driven and not teacher-driven. What that means, I believe, is that the teacher is not meant to come with an agenda. And that runs contrary to so much of how we are taught in other contexts to do Bible lessons. Because usually you've got a lesson plan and you have an objective. We're talking about the parable of the sower, and the lesson is successful if the student understands that his job is to be the good soil. And if he doesn't walk away understanding that his job is to be the good soil, then you failed as a teacher. And if you don't have that objective, you failed even worse because you've stepped into a lesson and you haven't figured out what it is that you wanted that student to learn. And I believe that that is not the pattern that we see here from this, uh, from Eleanor Frost. The pupils are being led to do as much as possible themselves. If they don't, if their conclusion from the parable of the sower has nothing to do with whether or not they need to be the good soil, your lesson is still successful as long as they're being drawn into the word and interacting with what the Lord has revealed in Scripture. And then uh, E.C. Plumtree in PR 40, which would have been 1929, she said, the last part of the lesson is devoted to discussion. This is a very important part, as here lies the opportunity for bringing home any special teaching the story may afford and of clearing up any difficulties indicated by the teacher in the lesson plan. Oh, I'm sorry. And uh, right, and of clearing up any difficulties that the commentary said should be highlighted in this particular lesson for it to be successful. No, it says, and for clearing up any difficulties raised by the children. So you have to be listening and you have to be responding to how the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of your child. And that takes precedence over whatever plans you might have and whatever insights you may have, uh, you may wish to share. You know, I saw this play out back in, uh, so the, around Christmas week of, of 2017, I had the wonderful opportunity of doing an immersion Bible lesson with the ladies of ADE. And um, we, we did a Savior of the World Bible lesson. And a friend of mine emailed me a couple weeks later and said, Art, you know, I, I, got, I listened to the podcast. I understand, you know, the, the structure of the lesson. But the one thing I don't really get is how, I don't see how you managed to engineer the discussion to reach the conclusion that you had in mind. Because it's like it was so obvious at the end that everybody walked away with such a clear, you know, set of conclusions, and everybody was deeply moved and had a very small set of scripts of spiritual ideas that the lesson had given them. And she's like, I cannot figure out how you steer the discussion towards that. And I said, Let me tell you what happened. I had not looked. I mean, I prepared the documents for that lesson three weeks in advance before we actually did the immersion. The ADE ladies had not seen it once, so they were seeing it for the very first time when we actually sat down to do the lesson. I had not looked at it in three weeks. I had absolutely no idea where the discussion was going to go. But I had no fear at all. I mean, the microphones were on, but I did it just like I do any other immersion. I had no idea where the discussion was going to go, but I trusted. God's word is a lion. And when you open that door and let the lion walk out, I, I, I mean, I don't need to worry about what's going to happen. I knew that the scriptures were going to touch their hearts, and that's exactly what happened. And the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit how he managed to get them <laughs> towards that conclusion, because it had nothing to do with me or my plan or my agenda. Okay, so a little bit more. This is now Helen Wicks, a very trusted uh, Charlotte Mason interpreter from uh, 1915. She said um, about the discussion phase, she said, so we encourage them to ask questions. And with a little help, they can often answer them themselves. So here's a, here's a twist. How about if you ask the children if they have any questions about what they just read? Maybe that's not the pattern to follow all the time, but it certainly is a valid pattern. We just read the passage. What question? Do you have any questions about this? 
Now, here's a, here's a great example that she gives. For example, suppose we have just read the parable of the finding of the pearl and the discovery of the hidden treasure. Remember those two parables back-to-back -back in the Gospels, the guy who, who found the pearl of great price and then the person who discovered hidden treasure in the field. The teacher may say she thinks that these two parables are very much alike, but she supposes they must teach different lessons or else they would not both be there side by side. So we've got the, the, the pearl, the treasure, they're right there together. They seem to say the same thing, but why would the Lord have two parables that are saying exactly the same thing right next to each other? It doesn't seem very efficient. So the teacher just raises that. Why would they be there? The children will probably look at the verses again, and pretty certainly one of them will exclaim, oh yes, I see, they are quite different. The merchant was hunting everywhere for the pearl. He was willing to give up everything he had for it. But the other man just came across the treasure by chance. From this point, it is easy to lead the children to think of characters in the Bible which have found either the pearl or the treasure, and then again of people they have read of in history. Which one were you? Were you searching for the pearl of great price and you finally found it? Or did you stumble across treasure in your field? What's your story? Helen Wicks then said, we do not believe in the PUS, in working into or at our pupils. Remember what I said this morning? You know Charlotte Mason at somebody? <laughs> they often have, the students often have so much more wisdom than we, but in class four, forms five and six, this is especially the case. The teacher is certainly older than her pupil and has, we may suppose, a little more experience and has, of course, prepared the lesson beforehand. And all this gives her a just and right advantage. And so she aims at being the guide, counselor, and friend to the girl to the best of her ability. So think about that when you're doing your discussion phase. You're a guide, you're a counselor, you're a friend. You're not a master. You're not forming a disciple in your own image. You're a fellow disciple of the one master. Jesus said, don't call anyone master, don't call anyone rabbi, don't call anyone father. We all our children at the feet of our Heavenly Father. Don't ever get confused about your role. and Don't ever let your children call you Rabbi, Master. Now, when it comes to the Savior of the world, the lesson is a little bit different. It's more expanded. So in the Savior of the lesson, we have step one. The lesson is connected to the previous one. Then we have the Bible passages read in the Gospel history. So instead of reading from the Bible text in terms of the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the reading is done from a book called the Gospel History, which is a harmonized edition of the four Gospels created into a single chronological narrative. This was, this was done by the Reverend C.C. James. Every single word in the Gospel history is taken from one of the four Gospels, but they're all condensed into a single composite narrative. So the Bible passage is read in the Gospel history, the Bible passage is narrated, and then we have a step uh, unique to the, um, the Savior of the World lessons where the individual Gospel accounts are compared. That's something that Forms 5 and 6 do. Discussion follows, as always, and then the very last step, the poem from the Savior of the World is read, and then the poem is narrated. So do you see how the Savior of the World is what's determining the passage to be read, but those are the very last steps at the end, and in the immersion today, you'll see what that looks like. So we have scripture studies in the program. We've talked about Bible lessons. Now let's talk about private daily Bible reading. Private daily Bible reading, its foundation, I think we see the rationale behind it in formation of character. Charlotte Mason writes, In the first place, every word of God is the food of the spiritual life, and these words come to us most freely in the moments we set apart in which to recollect ourselves, read, say our prayers. Such moments in the lives of young people are apt to be furtive and hurried. It is well to secure for them the necessary leisure, a quiet 20 minutes, say, and that early in the evening. For the fag end of the day is not the best time for the most serious affairs. 
I have known happy results where it is the habit of the young people to retire for a little while when their wits are fresh and before the work or play of the evening has begun. So do you see this is not school lessons anymore? This is not the first lesson of the day. This is not what happens during the, during the, the program time or the timetable. This is a separate habit that, again, the child's not forming completely on his or her own, but the parent is helping the child to find this time of day where it's their time to go off by themselves, alone, to do Bible reading and prayer with the hope that this becomes a habit that's sustained for life. It's still specified in the programs, but it doesn't happen during school hours. It begins in the programs with Forms 2 and above, which would be roughly ages 10 and above. The resource that's given for private daily Bible reading are these lections by Spottiswood, published by Spottiswood. And so um, what are these, what is this lections? There's one for younger children, there's one for older children. What on earth is this resource? Um, it's been a very puzzling question for some time. The lections by Spottiswood were assigned to Forms 2 through 4 in every program from 1921 to 1933, with the exception of 1922. So 92% of the terms that we have in the archive used lections by Spottiswood. The word lection without the E on the end is defined as a liturgical reading for a particular day. So a lection is basically a range of scriptures. John 1, 1 through 10 would be an example of a lection. It's basically a passage that you're supposed to read. Um, and it is, uh, so it's interesting, when I put these slides together and I had these conclusions, I said it's not a commentary or a devotional. It's basically a list of Bible verses to read. Now I was making this, I was foolish enough to go out and start making claims about a book that I had never seen. So people would say, what is Lections by Spottiswood? Have you ever seen one? No, nobody's ever seen one. Nobody knew what this thing was. Um, but that didn't stop me from going out and telling people what it was. You know, I said, this is what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a lectionary. It's basically, there's no commentary devotional. It's passages that people are supposed to read. So I went on public and I did the, what would be a very foolhardy thing to do um, for Nancy Kelly on Sage Parnassus. I wrote an entire article all about lections for Spottiswood that I had never actually seen one, but it was all based on other evidence about it. And I made all kinds of claims about it and wrote it. And it was actually after that thing went live that I actually managed to get a hold of one of these things after I was already done going on record of saying what I thought about it. And it's amazing. I managed to find a museum in England that had one of these. And uh, the, the, the person at the museum, she was willing to actually take photos of it. I mean, she broke protocol. So uh, she went into the private collection, found it, took the pictures, sent them over to me, and then said I could have the pictures of it as long as I promised not to distribute them or use them for any other purpose. So uh, to protect this, the, the curator who sent this to me, um, I have not shared them, but I have done all kinds of analysis. And so uh, my first article for uh, Nancy Kelly was, uh, was this um, Lections for Life. That kind of gives a perspective on why lections are important and what I thought the thing would have in it. And then we have my second article, which I wrote for Nancy Kelly on Sage Parnassus called Lections for Inspection. And then this says what it actually looks like now that I've actually had them. And it gives all kinds of information that I felt I could share without violating the trust of the curator who shared it for me. And then here's a little teaser. We took like a picture that kind of shows, just so you can see that I really did have it, that's what it actually looked like. Um, not the Bible, of course, but that's what the heading of it looked like. So that's my proof that I really did have this and see this. So the lections by Spottiswood, here's from the Parents Review that talks about it. Therefore, short passages called lections have been selected by a committee composed mostly of schoolmasters. Just 10 or 12 verses are grouped about the festivals of the church 
and are so selected that a boy does not simply say that's over and get into bed, but he really thinks now this has meant something, there's definite thought running through that, something that applies to my life and can be used in my life. So the key with lections and with daily readings is you don't want to make the passage be so long that it's overwhelming. And I talk in my article for Nancy Kelly about how I used McShane's Bible reading schedule for many years, and you read through the Bible in a year, the New Testament twice in a year, and when it would get to like Jeremiah and the end of Jeremiah, I used to just dread it because Jeremiah like 50 or 51 is like the longest passage in the entire Bible. And I'm like, oh my goodness, how am I going to read this and stay on schedule? And so the lections try to give you portions that can be read without overwhelming you and so that it can be a meaningful time for your devotions. Um, the lections can be purchased by Messrs. Spottiswood Eaton College. That's how I know that this reference in the Parents Review is really referring to that particular document. So it says that, the, uh, that they were organized around the festivals of the church. I believe that that's a reference to the church calendar that the church has used for millennia, where we have um, Easter with uh, the cross there in white, and we have Pentecost, we have Lent in purple leading up to Easter, we have Christmas with a star, we have Advent leading up, and then we have Epiphany and, and Ordinary Time in green. And so I believed that the lections were choosing scriptures based on whatever happened to be the season of the church calendar that you happened to be in at that particular time. And I turned out that it was confirmed when I actually saw one of these lections, I was able to see that that was indeed the case. So what we find now is this incredible, incredibly fascinating thing about Charlotte Mason's program for Bible lessons, because we have three different vantage points of looking at the scripture. We have first by book, Bible lessons in the Old Testament and New Testament, track one, take us through sacred scripture by book. Then we also have a second vantage point to look at sacred scripture. And now we're looking at the scripture by the chronological life of Christ. So we're looking now at a composite view of the four gospel witnesses together, giving us a collective view of the gospel's history, and that's New Testament track two. And then we have a third vantage point looking at scripture by the liturgical season, and we do that in private daily Bible reading. Now, here's the fascinating thing about this. By book, you're doing it with the form. That's the smallest set of people. Everyone in Form 1 across Britain is reading the Gospel of Mark this year. Then we move into the chronological life of Christ, and now we're part of a larger community because now everyone in Forms 3 through 6, everyone from 13 to 18 and above, we're all collectively reading the same place in the chronological life of Christ. And now we get into the private daily Bible reading, and here's the time when, at the one hand, we're alone, the student is alone and not with the teacher, and yet it's also the most communal. Because now each child is going into his closet and reading on his own, and yet he's in fellowship now with the entire church, universal. Everyone in the world now, it's Easter. And you're, the child is by himself, and yet he has the greatest cloud of witness around him because the church around the world is celebrating the resurrection of Christ on Easter or the nativity on Christmas Day or the Advent or whatever. So I think it's a beautiful, multi-dimensional way of experiencing the scriptures. Three vantage points, all corporate in one way or the other. By book... Charlotte Mason believed that every child should have the experience of approaching and reading one book of the Bible at a time in a progression. She said, how delightful would it be that each birthday should bring with it a gift of a new book of the Bible, progressing in difficulty from year to year, beautifully bound and illustrated and printed in clear, inviting type and on good paper. One can imagine the Christian child collecting his library of sacred books with great joy and interest and making a diligent and delighted study of the volume for the year in its appointed time. So she believed that every child should have the joy of saying, I read Mark. I met Mark in Form 1, and I spent the year with him, and that book now is going to go on my shelf. And then I got the Gospel of Matthew, and I spent my year with Matthew. And if you continue that all the way through Form 6, and then you end with you know, Revelation or the Epistles, 
you're understanding this, this idea of by book, very important to Charlotte Mason. And then we have the chronological life of Christ. In volume six, Charlotte Mason said, let us observe notebook and hand the orderly and progressive sequence, the penetrating quality, the irresistible appeal, the unique content of the divine teaching. For this purpose, it might be well to use some one of the approximately chronological arrangements of the gospel history in the words of the text. Let us read, not for our profiting, though that will come, but for the love of that knowledge which is better than thousands of gold and silver, by in which we perceive that this knowledge is the chief thing in life. The meaning of Christ saying, Behold, I make all things new, dawns upon us. We get new ideas of the relative worth of things, new vigor, new joy, new hope are ours. And then by the liturgical season, even those who do not belong to the Church of England will find her Sunday collects, epistles, and gospels helpful as giving young people something definite to think about week by week. We can hardly hope in this life to grow in all there is in those weekly portions, but the young Christian finds enough to go on and has reposing sense of being led step by step in the heavenly progress. So here there's progression in all three of these vantage points. There's progress and forward motion. I am not suggesting this as a substitute for wider reading of the Bible. It's complementary. It's a third vantage point. Um, so what do we do today? We don't have the lections. Those were time-bound for specific years and months. Um, I recommend personally the Revised Common Lectionary as a modern sort of equivalent to the lections. Um, it was prepared by an ecumenical committee of Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, and Methodist scholars. Um, that covers a pretty broad base. Um, it follows the liturgical calendar. Many churches use the RCL for their Sunday readings, and so this lectionary allows you to uh, have your private daily Bible reading, if you happen to be going to one of those churches, to line up with what you're hearing on Sunday, generally 20 to 30 verses per day. So then I want to talk about one more thing, which is uh, on catechism. Um, I'm not classifying catechism as scripture study. Um, I classify catechism as theology, and um, so I put that under the branch of other subjects that still leads towards his knowledge of God like every other subject does, but I don't think it's the same thing as Bible lessons. So Charlotte Mason definitely believed in the catechism. Um, she says here that uh, we find that Sundays, together with time given for preparation for confirmation, afford sufficient time for this teaching. What I take this to mean is that Bible lessons are not for teaching doctrine. The place to teach doctrine is with your catechism. Why does this matter? So I classify myself as an evangelical, but at the end of the day, I don't believe that anyone is saved by being an evangelical. I believe that people are saved by knowing Jesus. Here's an example of what Charlotte Mason had to say about this. She said, and by the way, I just want to share this quote, but I want to say with all due respect to people of different traditions, and uh, I just want to try to make a point with this. Charlotte Mason wrote, but what we do not have a right to do is to pass our opinions on to our children. We all know that nothing is easier to do than to make vehement partisans of young people in any cause heartily adopted by their elders. But a reaction occurs when you do this. And the swinging of the pendulum is apt to carry them to a point of thought painfully remote from their own. It's easy to make your child somebody who will repeat your sectarian view but there's a reaction that you can expect. The mother of the Newmans was a devoted evangelical and in their early years passed her opinions on to her sons, ready-made, believing, perhaps, that the line of thought they received from hers was what they had come to by their own thinking. She thought she was doing the right thing. But when they are released from the domination of their mother's opinions, one seeks anchorage in the Church of Rome and another will have no restriction as to his freedom of thought and will and choose to shape for himself his own creed or negation of a creed. Perhaps this pious mother would have 
been saved some anguish if she had given her children the living principles of the Christian faith, which are not matters of opinion, and allowed them to accept her particular practice in their youth without requiring them to take their stand on evangelical opinions as offering practically the one way of salvation. This is Charlotte Mason's word of warning to you parents to focus on what is the essentials, what is the mere Christianity, what are the key principles of Christian faith, and emphasize those and not your sectarian particular viewpoints. Her catechism that she used was like that. So when we think of catechism, we're not talking about things like predestination, free will, transubstantiation. Those were not the kinds of things that were zeroed into in the catechism. They were things like this. This is what was taught in the catechism. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. See, it's the Apostles' Creed. It's the ecumenical creeds of the undivided church. The point of the Bible lessons is to help your children meet Jesus, not to make sure they have the correct view of predestination or premillennialism. Please, please don't use your Bible lessons as a way to make your children partisans for your cause. So I'm just going to close with a mention of the passive and active principle. Charlotte Mason talks a lot about how the knowledge of God is what we're looking for in Bible lessons. That seems very passive. It's not about behavior. It's not about application. When I took Bible lessons and learned how to teach Bible studies when I was in college, I was told that if your Bible lesson doesn't lead to an application and changing somebody's life and something they were going to do differently, you had failed. But Charlotte Mason emphasized the importance of knowledge. And she refers to this as the passive principle. And she talks about how Goethe unfolds for us a principle of education which those who desire their children to possess the passive as well as the active principle of religion would do well to consider. For it is probably true that the teaching of the New Testament, not duly grounded upon that of the Old, fails to result in such a thought of God, wide, all-embracing, all-permeating, as David, for example, gives uh, constant expression in the Psalms. You have to have the knowledge of God from the broad perspective of Old and New Testament to truly understand him. She was particularly struck by a group of people who she thought had an incredible peace. And she wrote of those people of peace. She said, is it that like Goethe, they are aware of themselves, aware of themselves only as sheep of his pasture? And for the rest, take life as it comes. This peace comes to all simple, natural persons who have faith in God. They know something. She refers to peaceful people. And what they know is that they know that they are sheep in the hands of their Almighty Father. They're not trying to make resolutions about how to live a better life. They're trying to better understand. And they know. Once they know their shepherd, then they can live a life of peace. And then you might say, well, that seems very passive. My peace shall flow like a river has been said. And this is what we forget, that the peace of God is an active principle, ever flowing, ever going, ever nourishing, ever fertilizing, and not a passive state, a quiet creek where we may stagnate at our ease. My peace I leave unto you conveys a legacy to children as well as to their elders. You see, when you bring people into the knowledge of God and you enter into their peace, it's not a static peace. The peace of Christ is a river that is ever flowing. And so if you want your children to understand the active principle of religion, if you want faith in Christ to change what they do and how they live, they have to first connect with Christ and know him. And only then when they experience his peace can the river start to flow through them and bring that active part out. And so the way I like to illustrate that is that in the knowledge of God, 
the aim of the knowledge of God, why is it so important? The knowledge of God leads to the peace of God, the peace of God that comes from knowing who we are, knowing who our shepherd is, knowing his purpose for us, knowing his care for us, knowing that he will never leave us, knowing that he will be with us through the valley of the shadow of death. That knowledge doesn't come from a, a, a catechism. That knowledge doesn't come from a doctrinal statement. That knowledge only comes from seeing the faithfulness of God through all the New Testament. It comes from a lifetime of study of the scripture. But once you have that knowledge, that gives you that peace, and that peace, as we see, has both the active and the passive dimension of the spiritual life. And If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog. We hope you enjoyed the program. 